Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, we remember the wildlife biologist and explorer Alan Rabinowitz, who died this month. This is my unedited conversation with him from 2010. There's a shorter produced version at Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Grabbing a taxi on Fifth Avenue is much more challenging than tracking a tiger in Bhutan. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to mute you for a second while I fix the mic. New York, are you hearing us? Yes, we hear you. Good afternoon. How y'all doing today? Good. That's Alan, the guest. Alan? Yes. Hi, it's Krista Tippett. Hi, Krista. Hi. Good to have you on the other end of the microphone. Yes, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I wish I was looking at you in person. (laughs) Well, I'm going to have my eyes closed most of the time we're talking. I actually, (laughs) I really like this. There's an intimacy to this kind of conversation that's surprising. That's true, actually. Yeah. That's true. Uh, Do you have any questions of me before we start? No, I don't. I'm very interested. Um, I'm going to be interested on where you take this. Okay. <laughs> so I'm just looking forward to it, actually. Right, I, I saw that the, the last you did was with Katie Payne, who's a very good friend oh, of mine. Oh, isn't she? Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Katie I was and thinking I of her. Yeah, I wondered about that. I thought of her as I was as I was researching you, although the animals you work with are so different. So I wasn't sure if you necessarily would have crossed paths. Well, we did actually, mainly because her son worked for me years and ye- years ago, mm. and 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 I knew her former husband. We were all it 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 wasn't a very big field a few decades ago, so <laughs> we all knew each other. All right, Chris, how are we doing on levels? Do you want us to um, make small talk? You look pretty good. If I could just have Dr. Rabinowitz give me a little bit more. All right. Why don't you tell me something mundane like um, what you had for lunch? What I had for lunch, I had a turkey sandwich uh, on a roll with brie cheese in a way that only New York can do it. <laughs> um, is that it, or would yeah. you like me to keep How's on that, talking? Chris? It's Paul, the engineer in New York. I just uh, want to caution you about looking away from the mic while you're talking. Just okay, keep, okay. Try to keep just... Speaking forward, and that will help keep the level consistent. Got it. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, Krista, I think we're in good shape. Okay. So I'd like to start in a place I always start, whoever I'm interviewing, whether they're a quantum physicist or a, bio, a wildlife biologist. <laughs> um, and uh, and I just, I, I'd like to hear if there was any kind of uh, religious or spiritual background to your childhood. Uh, the not not so much that I recall. There was when I was growing up. I I came from a a uh, Jewish immigrant family. My mother came from Latvia. My my father, as as a child, was brought over from 
from Russia. And they, they, were, they were, I guess, what was considered conservative Jews. Mm-hmm. I spent my early years going to Hebrew school and learning to be bar mitzvahed, but it never, it never registered very well with me. In fact, I, I usually revolted against it for many reasons, because what I was being taught was different from what I was seeing in terms of how people acted. That was, that was especially poignant for me as a child, because I grew up stuttering. Mm-hmm. That, I, I was a very, very severe stutterer as a child for as long as, for as, long as I can remember. And because I stuttered, People viewed me in different ways. The New York City school system classified me as as handicapped and in terms of in 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 special needs. So I was put in special classes from kindergarten until sixth grade. Other people thought I was retarded and treated me such. And I grew up very much inside of my own head because mm. since adults didn't view me as normal, I just thought that I would uh, go into myself and not even try to show adults that I was indeed normal and capable of, 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 of full thought and normal thinking. You know, what, what I also hear you saying is that um, you were in a special position to, to experience whether people actually lived these beautiful religious virtues like compassion, Right. That's exactly what, what I'm saying, uh-huh. yes. Yeah. I guess the, what, what turned me away from religion as a young child was that what people were saying or reading did not go along with their actions. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, from what I've read, that your parents, I, I possibly just because they didn't know better, mm, isolated you further because they didn't, they didn't draw you out on it. They didn't know how to talk about it with you. That's right. They, back then, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but I, I, I guess it is in terms of technological time. There were no computers. We couldn't go online and see if there were Go to WebMD. People, that's <laughs> yeah. right. So I was the, the only stutterer or child in that situation in my, in my small local community. Mm-hmm. And... They believed, my parents believed, the pediatricians and other advice they would get, that just ignore it. Ignore it and it will either go away, just don't bring attention to it. And actually, to a young child, all I wanted was was some acknowledgement that I was going through this kind of pain, mm. especially by my own parents. And they they didn't acknowledge it. I didn't understand why. When I, I do understand that now because they really just didn't know what to do. Yeah. And they thought that by not drawing attention to it and treating me as normal, I would feel more normal. But in actual fact, I grew up feeling that they were ashamed of me mm-hmm. because they acted as if it didn't exist when it ruled every aspect of my life. And um, And is it right that that you did speak to animals. Yes. I lo- I, <laughs> I've since learned that stutterers can do at least two things, most stutterers, without stuttering. One is sing because it opens up the airflow. 
And the other, for psychological reasons, is you can speak to animals. There's no expectation there, no judgment there. And that's what I would do. I, I, mean, I grew up in New York City. I, my animals were little green turtles and hamsters and, okay. and chameleons. <laughs> and that's who I would speak to. Did I would you... be mute all day long in school, and I would come home and speak to animals. And did you just stumble upon the fact that you could do that? Did yes. You? Well, you, it is a bit trial and error, or it was for me, but it was mostly that I wouldn't speak to... I, I, I just stopped trying to speak to adults, and I would come home, and I would live in my own head, and I would like to go into a closet and go in the darkness and be by myself in my own head, and I would talk to myself, and sometimes I would bring my pets in with me, hmm. and talking to myself became talking to them. And at a certain point, I believed that they were listening to me. Hmm. And, I mean, is that, did that experience um, also, I mean, is there a direct line between that and you growing up and studying uh, biology and becoming a wildlife biologist? I mean, do you think that set your path in life? Absolutely. I, I very clearly remember as a young child thinking that I now understand why people don't treat animals very well, that why people feel nice people and seemingly normal people will think nothing when their, their chameleon dries up and dies or they didn't fill the turtle tank with water and the, water, and, and the turtle dies or they... The, their dog gets sick and they euthanize it. There was a lack of feeling in all these actions towards animals. Mm-hmm. And I really could see that if animals had a voice, people would not treat them the way they do, that they were, they were experiencing or I was experiencing what they experience all the time, which is mm-hmm. being misunderstood and really mistreated simply because they did not have a human voice. And I swore to myself as a child, I re- over and over again I did this, that if I ever was able to find my voice, which I didn't think I would as a child, that I would be their voice. I would, I would be there for them. Now, that, I'm not saying that's the only reason I took the path I did, but it's been in my mind for my entire life mm. trying to give back to these animals who I think want nothing more than to live their own lives the best that they can, and we throw up roadblocks constantly. Hmm. So I want to talk some more uh, in a little while about, you know, stuttering and some of these these larger issues, but but I would like to kind of fast forward now to your career as... uh, what have they called you? The Indiana Jones of wildlife <laughs> conservation. So, so, and I'd love for you to fill in some of the blanks because it is an amazing story. And so, here's one, uh, one m- milestone I have: the story that in 1980 you are tracking raccoons and black bears in the Great Smoky Mountains, and uh, and this great zoologist George Schaller invites you to study jaguars in Belize. <laughs> but, I mean, tell me, first of all, how you came to be tracking raccoons and black bears <laughs> and what, what you were learning from them. Well, 
I came to be tracking, it was more about trying to escape from people at that time in my life. Still. Than, than running towards something. It okay. was really running away from. I was, yeah, I really didn't get the treatment. My parents tried everything for that, for that time period in my life to, to try to address my stuttering. Uh, I uh, I even had shock therapy. Oh, I had gosh. shock therapy. I had drug therapy. I had hi- hypnosis, uh, psychological therapy, and nothing really worked because they didn't understand, as they do now, that stuttering is at least partly genetic mm. and involves neurological functions. So I did end up finally as a senior in college going to a speech clinic which taught me how to speak. It didn't cure stuttering. Stuttering is do, doesn't get cured in that kind of a sense, but you can learn to speak fluently even as a stutterer. And I did that. It didn't happen until my senior year of college. And when you say to speak fluently as a stutterer, what, what are you describing? That you I'm work with the stutter rather than against it? Is a, exactly. Uh-huh. The, the, I grew up with the only thought in my mind of somehow f- one day there would be a drug, uh, a technique that would cure me of my stuttering. I would be a fluent speaker again who doesn't have to think about every word that they say where speaking doesn't become an onerous task or that... I would just wake up in the morning and somehow it would have gone. But, of course, that never happens. They teach you to acknowledge that you're a stutterer, first of all, and then to use actual techniques with your tongue, with your lips, hard, trying to avoid hard contact and leaving the airflow go gently through the system so that you can speak fluently. It's... it. It sounds much easier than it is. It took, <laughs> no. it took thousands and thousands and thousands of hours, and many people learn to do it and then just regress. But I wanted mm. so badly to stop stuttering that I would practice day in and day out in front of a mirror with my mouth parts. In the beginning, it kind of sounds like this. You don't allow any hard contact. It sounds almost as if oh. you've been drinking. And... Uh, I learned how to speak fluently. I could control it. I was a fluent stutterer. And that opened up a whole new avenue in my life. But the funny thing was, I I learned by that time that I didn't really care to be among the world of people. (laughs) All I ever thought I wanted was to, to speak fluently and be accepted by the world of people and to be so-called normal. And then when I could finally speak fluently, I realized that most people didn't have that much to say that I was interested in. (laughs) And that that I I would rather be with the animals. (laughs) And I applied to graduate school to to study biology and to continue my love of Mm -hmm. science and and to escape towards to places where Language wasn't that important. Hmm. And so George Schaller's invitation for you to study jaguars really did take you off in a direction that, that was formative, didn't it? it, it yeah, yes, it did. At the time, George was studying 
giant panda bears hmm. in, <laughs> in China. And, and there, was a, there was a bit of a controversy at the time about exactly what panda bears were. Were they a bear? Were they a raccoon? George at the time thought they might be in their own family. Today, we, we, we actually know from genetic work that panda bears are a bear, but nobody really, they, they were the most un, unbear-like bear, mm. and they were very much like a raccoon in some ways. And at the time, I was one of the only people in the world, maybe the only person, I don't know, I've never asked George, <laughs> who was studying both bears and raccoons ah. in a place in Tennessee, the Smoky Mountains. I see. And he found me and came to look at my work, actually. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I have to say that when I, when I look at um, descriptions of what you've done in these 25 years, you know, you, you've, you have uh, worked in some of the most remote places on Earth. You know, like, here's a description you gave, that you've lived for days in caves chasing bats. You've captured and tracked bears, jaguars, leopards, tigers, and rhinos discovered new animal species, documented lost cultures, such as the world's only uh, mongoloid pygmies. Um, and, you know, when I read your writing, you have been passionate about um, the fact that there are wild places left and, um, and that, 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 that exploration um, is, is, is not something just of the past. Some of your language... Uh, you know, sounds like these 18th and 19th century explorers, many of them British, who also went out to find the lost places. And I wonder if you if you think about um, the difference between their intentions and, and, and what they do when they find these wild places and, and your work. Um, and, and also, I wonder, are you, in a sense, coming up against um, th- their legacy? Does that, does that question make sense? Yes, it does. It does. Because uh, you don't sound I, like many people living today, you know, but when I read you, you sound like these, this, this other generation of explorers. <laughs> and I've read much of them. I've, I've read, that's one of my favorite kinds of books, are mm-hmm. these, these old adventure and exploration novels, people really pitting themselves. I, I associate myself more with the people who try to pit themselves against environmental hardships, actually, than I do with the pure scientists who go in search of new biological discoveries. Right, the rare flower uh, that has never been seen. Yes, uh-huh. but I always wanted to, to combine both of them. Like, like I, don't, I think some of those early naturalists were incredible people. In fact, I believe George Schaller is part of that genre. Uh. I, they, they, they know so much about so many things. I, I don't find I, I live up to that, actually. I think I'm, I'm a pale shadow of some of these early explorers, really. And I never truly aspired to be like them or like anybody else. So much of what I did, as I said, was, was almost more a searching for who I am, what defines me, a running away from everything else I've known towards somebody that I'm trying to figure out. And it it took me a lot to figure out who that person was. I mean, I, I can't say I've totally done that, actually. I'm not sure anybody does. No. But I really have moved strongly towards that as I try to write about in my books. Uh, 
I would never, you know, I don't think I'm good enough to compare myself to any other ex earlier explorer. But when I read contemporary writing of people traveling or doing things versus the old writing, yeah. I associate much more with, with what happened 100 years ago who and do the, you think the of? mindset of those people. Yeah, like what, not, what names come to mind for you? Just who, who have you enjoyed reading? Shackleton. Uh -huh. Yeah, right. <laughs> Shackleton is one of my, he's one, one of my true heroes, uh -huh. what that man did, what he was able to, to, to live through. But you see, when, uh, when I look at the picture, uh, uh, and I think of you um, together in a sentence with these kinds of figures, I, I also think you're animated by very different uh, late 20th, early 21st century uh, um, goals. I mean, that you know, there's a sense, not all of them, they weren't all out to conquer and civilize, but, but some of them were. And, and you have added this twist to the notion of exploring and defining the wild places, and this twist is conservation and, and preservation. Yes. From the, from the earliest time, I felt like I wanted to have a positive change in the things that I did. I not only wanted to go out and challenge myself against the environment, against odds, and, and explore wild places, I also wanted to be a voice for the animals. I did want to save wildlife, but I wanted to know what I w was doing. I always appreciated science more than any other course I studied because to me, science w was its own language. Science was a language of truths that would be there apart from whether human beings were on this earth or not. Hmm. Science presented certain facts and certain realities, it allowed me to delve into a world that didn't have to do with speech or, or anything else like that that was human-centric, but had a life of its own. You think of like natural laws, um, the laws of yes. biology. Yes, mm -hmm. and that's what I always felt the greatest affinity to. So if I could combine, I never enjoyed traveling for traveling's sake or conquering a mountain for just the mountain's sake. I appreciate people who do do that, but, but, but I find that a bit empty. I really enjoy, enjoyed and still enjoy conquering a mountain and at the same time documenting what the biodiversity is of that mountain and right. possibly finding some endemic species that, that nobody either knew about or we didn't know enough about and, and adding to the scientific literature of of that species, and now I feel everything has to be taken a step further into conservation so that everything I do has to do with how do we save this wildness or wilderness that we still have on Earth. That's what has most meaning for me. I don't know if anything I've ever done or will do will have a lasting effect on the Earth, but you know what? It doesn't. I need to... I need to go to sleep at night feeling that I've tried my best to make mm -hmm. a meaningful change in this world. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way I know how. Tell me, you, you've been so many places. You've, you've done a lot. But, I mean, tell me, illustrate what you just said with, with a story of, you know, one of these experiences you've had where you... You know, where you where you did what you said, where you where you both had a, a personal adventure and also have 
under, come to understand something about biodiversity and conservation, which you've been able to share with other, others? What's top of your mind right now? Oh, that's a boy. You do ask me challenging questions. <laughs> that's that's a. I'm going to say what first has come to my mind, which, which has to do with an incredible story that combines cultural diversity and biological diversity because I never felt that, that I was that that interested in the human side of things mm-hmm. until I started reaching some of these uh, more unexplored cultures or people living different different ways of life. I guess one of the most memorable trips I ever took was to the far, far north of Myanmar or Burma, up by the Tibetan border. I wrote about this in one of my books called Beyond the Last Village. And it it took me a long time. We had to fly. It took several days first of flying smaller and smaller planes in order to get to the very last place you could fly into on a a small twin prop in northern Burma. And then it was about a three to four week hike uh, to get to the border of Tibet up in the snowy mountains. You were actually going up into the into the lower Himalayas. And I just wanted to, I said, I was able to receive, it took me about three years to get permits from the Myanmar government in order just to do this. And when they finally gave me permits, it was for a scientific expedition to document if the tiger still existed up in the far northern part of its range and to look at what the biological diversity was of that area. Now, this follows very much on what you asked earlier because the, the only documented records at that time from that area were from an early British botanist named Frank Kingdon Ward. Oh, yes, I, I know bo- him, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he he was an incredibly intrepid explorer who went on almost no money at all just uh, to to go and look for orchids, rare orchids, yes, as right. well as other other flowers. Yeah. And 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 I had read everything by him, especially for this part of the world where he was really interested. This gets into the Shangri La stories, right? You're in that that's part of the right. world, yeah, exactly. And he actually published some books which I was able to get a hold of from rare bookstores where he he did some very primitive maps of how he hiked up into this area. Mm. But as, typical as a botanist, he never talked about wildlife. And there was <laughs> okay. no no mention of any of the wildlife up there or of the animals. He only had eyes for flora and fauna. <laughs> he only had eyes for flowers. That's right. Yeah. But I have to admit, as a zoologist, I almost never talk about plants either. Okay. So it goes both ways. Yeah. So I followed his earlier trail. I actually, it, it wasn't easy because when I got to the last town where I could fly into, there were almost no people who who had been up in that area and knew the best route. And they they knew that there were some Tibetan tribal groups up there or ethnic groups up there and other kinds of tribal groups, but they were scared of going up there. Finally, I was able to meet a, a, a Tibetan who had come down from that region, have it, have it, having taken more than a month walk to come down. And he led us back up there along with a monk who wanted to go back up there and, interestingly enough, proselytize to the tribal groups up there who were 
because of historical reasons, many of them had been converted to to different forms of Christianity. Some, oh, really? Some were, some I thought you were going to say they were groups. animist, but they were... No, this was what's really interesting. Huh. They, these were very remote tribes, which actually had this interesting history of religious conversion from when China became communist and, and, and religious uh, preachers and leaders were chased out of China and came into northern oh Burma through southern China. And th- there were actually numerous groups up there. One was a Baptist group. One was a, And these are very, uh, very primitive groups huh. who, who hunt, hunt wildlife for exchanging with the Chinese for salt. That's their trade. The, it's <laughs> only the Tibetans up in the very far north they were Buddhist, and the monk wanted to to come with me in this area because he had never been, and to conv- not to convert per se, because that's not what these Buddhist monks do, but to live with the the people and and get them to accept Buddhism through through his example. I guess it is a kind of c- conversion, but through through example rather than through any kind of active active activity. Uh, that so is really interesting. It was a very strange group of us walking up there into the far north. And eventually, after I think three weeks, it took us walking every day, staying in these different villages of tribal groups I had never read about or heard about, groups called the, Ra- the Rawan, the Talu, uh, groups I've never seen written up in any kind of anthropological treatise or writings. We reached the last settlement of human habitation in northern Burma. From there on in, it was pure, rugged, snowy Himalayan mountains to the, to the Tibetan border and mm-hmm. over into China. And in this area is where I met this last group of mongoloid pygmies, the only <laughs> mongoloid pygmies known in the world, called the Turon, and they were going extinct. And did, did people know even that they still existed or th- that they no. existed there? No. So you, Nobody, this really wasn't Not the outside world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there had been, the reason I even knew about them is because there had been an article r- written up about their discovery in, in the international journal Nature in the 1960s. And at that time, there were several hundred of them left. These doctors, these Burmese doctors, had actually hiked up and made it up to them and, and studied them and said that they were true pygmoid people. They weren't just short due mm-hmm. to nutritional defects. They were, they were true pygmoid individuals. But since that time, since the 60s, nobody really knew anything about them. And by the time I got to them, in fact, I didn't even know when I got to them because the few that were left hid from me. They all ran and hid. And it was only when the other tribal group asked them to come out that they would, would come out and meet me. And there were only about 12 of them left. Mm, right. You have pictures in, in one of your books. And, I mean, they're just amazing to look at. They, they, I have to say, I mean, this is, they, they, they taught me more than anything else. This was almost a defining moment of my life when, because it was a time when I was trying to figure out 
whether I wanted to have children, whether my marriage would really work out, mm. whether whether where my life was actually g- going as I as I figured things out. And here, that this leader of the Tehran who couldn't speak speak my language. In fact, he didn't speak Burmese either. It was a completely, mm. it, was, it was the Tehran dialect. If mm. I really wanted to talk to him, I had to go through three different translators. But, <laughs> but I didn't spend much time talking to him. He, he and I went off by ourselves up into the snowy mountains for a couple of days, and we were alone together. And we didn't have to. T- this was exactly everything I had looked for to figure out how you get to the to the to the heart of the human spirit without speaking, without an actual human voice, and and we were able to to do that. Well, what what I mean was it just about was it about presence? Was it about just physical presence or doing things together? I mean, how did? What happened for those two days? It was, it's, it's again, it's, it's hard to put into words because it, it, it was it wasn't all word non, based, <laughs> nonverbal. Uh-huh. But it was about all of those things. It, uh, we would, we didn't spend a lot of time together, so it's not like we, we just knew what each other needed or wanted. Here mm-hmm. we are. We couldn't be more different. Here's this little guy who's under four feet tall. Um, He's under five feet tall, four four feet something, and from from this remote area in northern Myanmar, untouched by the outside world. Here here I am, a New York Jewish kid that grew up stuttering and and couldn't <laughs> deal with with the world of people that was all around me, and we actually seemed to just fall into a balance of commonness that. We would sit around the, the fire at night and and smile at one another and touch one another and 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 know make know eye what contact. The other I mean, needed. those other kinds of communication that we undervalue in our in Western yeah. culture. And then he started making gestures. He started making gestures about about young children, which I didn't quite understand at first. And only when we got got back was I able to confirm what he was trying to. To say to me, he wanted to know. He wanted to, to know why I didn't have any children. Oh. And <laughs> I asked him through these translators. I asked, "Why do you?" He didn't even know I didn't have any children. I said, "Why do you assume I have no no children?" And he said, "Because you, you act like like a man who still has this deep, deep hole inside of him." Oh and, my gosh. And I. I know that hole, and I can't have any children because nobody will mate with me. Nobody will will be my partner because he was the the last viable Tyrone living, and the other tribal groups would not would not breed with him. Did, didn't I also read in your work that they, because they had had so much inbreeding, because their numbers had dwindled, that so many of their children died? Or is that they right? Di- they were. They wouldn't live very long. Yes, uh-huh. there was a lot of there was a lot of cretinism and mm-hmm. and g- genetic defects. So some of the children died, but the main thing is, as as a group, they decided not to have many children. They oh. were taking themselves to extinction. Oh. And Dawi, this man's name was Dawi. 
he wanted desperately to have a family, and hmm. he felt he, wouldn't, he never would, that he couldn't, that it wasn't right, and that he wouldn't be able to anyway. Nobody would breed with, with, hmm. with him. And it was after my time with Dowie that I returned to the United States, and I looked upon my marriage in a completely different way, mm. and I decided to have children as well, which has been the best thing that's ever happened to me. You have two children, right? Yes, mm-hmm. young children, eight, eight and ten. Okay. That's an amazing story. So so you went in search of biodiversity, and you found... <laughs> I, mean, I found Dawi. And you found human <laughs> beings as part of that biodiversity. Well, I found an incredible biodiversity as, as, as well. Not a rich biodiversity, but a very special... Up there in this, in this area where the jungle ends and you start getting into cold and snow, you get this very, very rich transition zone, this very interesting area. And since there are so few people in this region to destroy that kind of area, everything still exists. And, and, and the mutations or the evolving life forms that have occurred in order to merge from one kind of zone into another are, are still there. And that's how I discovered in this same region, that's how I discovered this completely new deer species to science. Well, that was the that same was, area that you, that you made that, that discovery. That was the same area. Mm. That was it, it was, it was, it was not as high as where Dawi lived because he was past that zone up in, up in the colder area, but it was just short of there where the transition was made as I hiked up into that area. And in fact, it was on that original trip that I first started seeing these weird animal parts, which didn't look like anything I had ever seen before. Mm. And I took them back to the genetics lab here in New York, and they told me this was a completely new species. Mm. And then I went back a, for, for, for another trip to that area to try to find this animal alive and document the actual existence of this, this animal, which turns out to be the most primitive living deer in existence. Right. It's called a living fossil by many, many people. And it just lives in this very small area. It's endemic just to this part of northern Myanmar and going over a little into, in, into India across the border. Hmm. So, I mean, you've told me these two incredible stories from, from Myanmar, from that part of the world, and, and you haven't even gotten to the fact that, you know, you have you have created something quite remarkable there. I mean, you've been behind this establishment of a, an 8,000-square-mile tiger resolve, uh, reserve. Um, yeah, it's, all, it's actually almost 9,000 square 9, miles. 9,000. It's, it's, it's the size, almost the size of the state of Vermont. Uh, it's pretty incredible. It's an incredible area. I set it up because it was one of the last two areas left in all of Burma and one of the last best regions in that part of the world which still had tigers in them. Hmm. And we had to save the last tigers because tigers are just plummeting. Tigers are really in danger of, of extinction as we know them as wild animals. And I'm, it's, a, it's almost a desperate endeavor for me now. I wake up at night thinking about how we're going to save tigers. Uh, and I got this area. It's been a multi-year challenge, but I was able to deal with 
the dictatorship in Myanmar, in yeah. Burma, which I'm sure many other people have questions about how I deal with the dictators. But I actually, over the, the, the years, and it's been a 15-year process, I was able to garner both the confidence of the, of the, of the dictators and their understanding that this was crucial for the country as well as for the world at large if we save this incredibly important area with the people in it. There were people in it at the time, and there still are, increasing numbers, in fact. But that was okay in trying to figure out how the wildlife lives with the people and both could exist in a protected area where, where people's lives could develop and get better for it and the wildlife could still stay alive. You know, you have talked and written about how big cats <laughs> have this special appeal to the human imagination and even the human heart. Um, so tigers, leopards, jaguars. I mean, is that also, is that even true of, uh, of military dictators in Burma? And I mean, how do you, how do you explain that? Hmm. The, they're an interesting bunch. Um, not all, now we tell you, there's a lot of them. The, the, the dictatorship in Burma consists of several dozen generals. It's not just, there is, there is one man at, right, right. on top. Mm-hmm. It's the junta. Yes. Mm-hmm. The one man on top is the controlling influence, and he is not somebody who, who I know <laughs> uh, nor, frankly, care to. Um, but there were all those generals below him so, who, mm-hmm. who were running the government bureaus, the Ministry of Forestry, Ministry of Defense, uh, Ministry of, of Agriculture. And those are the generals that I did have to interact with and I did get to know. And, I mean, at the, at, at the root, everybody is human, isn't it? Yeah. When you, when you, despite what you end up hearing about people... People are still human, and they have human emotions, maybe not all the right ones or the ones that we, we care to see. But in fact, I ended up feeling that many of the uh, junta, at least the, the people I worked with, they cared a lot more about their country and about their country's people than the outside world realized or that they were actually able to let on because if they did, they wouldn't be in their position any longer. Hmm. So there were ways, again, I'm not trying in any way to, to be an apologist for them because that government by its own elections is an illegal government. But the other side of that is they actually really cared about conservation, about wildlife. They took a long-term view. They felt they, they needed to be the parent to the people. It's, whether right or wrong or how they did it, I, I, I really can't address the whole human rights side because I tried very much staying out of that if right. I wished to do conservation. I would never ignore, an, there was never ever any conflict between what I was doing and for some reason my, my, my activities hurting people because I wouldn't have allowed that. But everything I was doing was in such remote areas that, ironically, most of the areas I traveled to, the military or the government people who went with me had never been there before. Mm. 
they right. those areas were not opened up to them. They were in control of of local ethnic groups. So, uh, I I had to. Over my career, some people, after my work in Burma, I've been accused of many things. I've been accused of turning a blind eye to human rights abuses, which I have never done. Right. Some advocacy I've been accused of, of giving legitimacy to the regime by just even working there. Now, maybe there's something to that. Maybe not. if I gave leg- legitimacy to that regime... It sure wasn't shown in any overt way because they never used me. They never advertised anything I did. I'm the one who had to, to write books about it or right. try to try to say some positive things about it. If if anybody wants to still make a case that I just should not even have been in that country under that current regime, then my answer to that is that if we were to look at the, the, the politics behind where endangered species live, if we were to look at politics or, or consider politics in areas where tigers who get no vote <laughs> in where they live or whether they can live or die, right. then, then where would we work, frankly? Where would we really work? Because a justification could be made for any country in the world, including the United States, that, that you shouldn't be working there. <laughs> Hmm. And I have to, if I'm going to truly save wildlife, if I'm going to be true to my feeling that I have to be a voice for wildlife, then I will work anywhere. I will do what it takes to, to save wildlife, no matter where they occur, as long as in that process I am not hurting, hurting people. Because I don't view wildlife conservation in the end is of great benefit to the human race and to local communities who live with that wildlife. Right. So and I view everything I do as a positive for people. It, it, it seems to me when I, when I read um, you and read about you in the last few years that, that there's been this other stage in your thinking about this, that, that even in the last few years you've kind of have turned a corner in terms of seeing, seeing that connection between... Uh, the preservation of animal habitats and the vitality of human communities. W- would that be fair? That yes, it would. Um, whether I like it or not, the 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 sustainability of of wilderness of wildlife populations is in the hands of the human race, hmm. and there is a direct linkage, and I think there always will be, between the understanding and the activities of people, be they at the local level or at a national level, and the well-being and preservation of wildlife and wilderness areas. So I can't, I can't separate them as I wanted to when I was younger, right. as I thought I could. I mean, here, you know, here are some lines you wrote in 2006. You wrote, It is not earth-shattering news that animals and people must live together if there is to be any true wildness for future generations. I am among the majority of scientists and conservationists who've done little to effectively foster this relationship in a sustainable manner until now, that is. So, I mean, tell me about that turning point. What, what brought that home for you? What changed for you? Being, being among these, these ethnic groups, being among these remote tribal groups or remote c- communities, which 
which lived with wildlife, which which accepted the the wilderness around them, which showed me a model for how mm. people can live with their environment and still move forward. I'm not I'm not saying this that these people should be kept. In fact, I I advocate opposite. There are there are, there are many people who go in and find a a tribal group or a remote village and say, we shouldn't touch this place. This should be left as is. Well, I have never been to a remote area where the people don't want a better life, hmm. where the people are not aware of the fact that many of their babies die and they have a lot of illnesses that, that the outside world d doesn't have and they would rather have more than they have then. And I think it's wrong to try to hold that back from them. Where the balance has to occur is figuring out how to, how to enable and empower local communities to live better, have a better life, have, have better medical care, have lower infant mortality, and yet, yet at the same time, balance that with giving life, giving an area of the world to the wilderness and the wildlife that live with these people. And, and that can be done. Right. It's not pie in the sky. Right. You're also, t I mean, you're talking about people living with tigers, right? I mean, you're not talking about them having dogs as pets. I mean, you're, you're talking about very wild animals, potentially dangerous animals. That's right. In, in, the, in, the, in the town of Churchill, cap the, the polar bear capital of the world, people value those polar... There are signs all over the, the community saying, beware of polar bears. They, 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 they say you can tell a person from Churchill because they're always looking around the corner or always <laughs> looking in back of them. I, people, that, and the positive is, and they want those, those bears because there's, they, they realize what the positive sides of it is in terms of economics. I can very much make positives for, for large cats in terms of human health benefits and, and other things. And there are ways people can live. It doesn't mean there will never be conflict, but people can live with large predators. You, you've also talked about a success story of the Maya Indians who used to kill jaguars who have become wardens to those animals. Yes, the, the, the Mayans and, and many other groups throughout Jaguar Range I mean, jaguars still get killed a lot, but not nearly to the extent that they that they used to. And it's not because these these poor communities or these indigenous groups had some kind of a conservation epiphany. Yeah, it's because they had a growing economic awareness. It's because they all of a sudden their lives could be better off because. People came down and paid money and stayed in their local thatched uh, motels or, or huts to, to see jaguars or to follow jaguar trails or to buy their local uh, handicrafts than they ever made from cutting all the forest and just growing corn and selling the corn and just barely living, barely surviving. Their lives were better for it. And... They realized that 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 this was a win-win, and they loved they they ended up really liking jaguars. I in my <laughs> early days, I never would meet a local person who dared walk in the forest without a gun. They just felt there mm -hmm. it was crazy to do that. It was just too dangerous out there. I rarely meet 
a Mayan now in the same area or a local person who's carrying a gun. And it's not because they're mandated not to. I ask them, where, why aren't you carrying something? Your machete, your gun? Right. They said, we, don't, we know that there's no need to. If we see a jaguar, we stop on our bicycle and we watch it now. Hmm. Now, that's, that, that's people starting to live with the big cats. It right. can be done, just like people live with mountain lions in the United States. Right. Will it mean that, that there'll be no problems, no conflicts? No, it, 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 it doesn't mean that. But we have to view it in the same way as we view conflicts in our everyday life. I can't understand why people classify conservation or, or living with, with animals as different from the, the problems we have every day of living with, with, with other people. Right. You know, you said in a little a while ago, we're all city. human, but maybe we're all also wildlife. <laughs> yeah. Oh, exactly. Oh, um, well, that's exactly right. You know what? There's a so so there's a phrase that I think is often used kind of romantically, and there's a lot of energy around this now, talking about the animal-human bond. Okay, so when people talk about that in the United States, they're talking about our relationships with our dogs and our cats for the most part. But I just wonder for you, with all these years you've spent and in the presence of um, of big cats, for example, um, of of animals with whom many people have for understandable reason not felt safe walking in the presence of without a gun. I mean, have you learned things about the animal-human bond that would stretch our imagination about that? I'm trying to think how I, how I explain what I feel without, without seeming like it, it verges off into the into the almost supernatural, well, because it's not supernatural. They, yeah. I, I do feel a very, very close bond with animals, not just with the big cats, but, but with animals as a, as a whole. It doesn't mean I don't feel fear and re- respect for them. In fact, I'm often, I'm often angered by TV shows or by commentaries that, that I hear by, by people who feel that Humans can truly bond with wild animals to where you can, you can go up and touch them or sleep among them or that kind of thing. And invariably, those people either get killed or mauled mm-hmm. because there is, they are a different species from us. There is a wildness about them. And at the same time, I have tracked, I have come face to face with wild tigers. I've come face to face with jaguars, lions, all of them. Almost all, not yet. Yet a snow leopard. Okay. And I felt great fear. Now, fear was definitely a part of a part of the 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 menagerie of feelings that ran through me, and and that's healthy, I believe. Mm. But I also felt that there was this incredible. I was I was so flattered to be in the presence of this unbelievable wildness that we don't feel during our everyday everyday lives. Could I bond with them? I almost, in a way, yes, and yet in in a way, I almost learned the opposite. By spending so much time in the jungle with these wild cats and sometimes significant time with them face to face, I also came to, to, to realize that there would always be a wall between us. Hmm. A wall that couldn't be breached and really shouldn't be breached 
because we were of two different worlds, worlds that could come to, together on certain things, but that just had to be apart on others for both of us to live properly within this larger world. I don't know if that makes a lot yeah, of sense. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's, it's an appropriate boundary. I mean, you need those even with people with whom you have intimate relationships. That's know? true. And, okay, and anything else you want to say about that? I don't want you to worry about sounding supernatural because, I, I mean, I'm very curious. I, so, you know, when you talked about going away with the, uh, what was his name, the, the, the pygmy, the man in Dawi. Burma, for, for two days, and you, you had all these nonverbal ways of communicating. I mean, do you also have that experience with, with animals? This oh, I had that. The nonverbal communication I could feel with the animals and with the big cats especially since I was a child. My father, he didn't know how to handle a lot of what was going on inside of me. He didn't want to talk about my stuttering or my, my lack of being able to deal with other people. But he did realize that, that I had certain outlets that just made me feel good and relaxed and I could speak a little better after those. And one of those was taking me to, to the Bronx Zoo. Really? Hmm. He would take me to the Bronx Zoo and we would go straight for a building that is still there. It's no longer what it was, but it was called the Great Cat House. And it just had cats, big cats cage after cage, like the old zoos did. Concrete cage after concrete cage of big cats. You would walk in there and the, the sounds and the smells would be just overwhelming. It would, it would, it would stink of, of wildness and big cats and the, and the, 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 the jaguar would, would be coughing and the, and the uh, tiger would be roaring and it would just, the cacophony of sound would both terrorize you and thrill you at the same time. Right. And I would go, always go over. There were two. They had one lone jaguar and one lone tiger at the time. Sometimes I'd go to the jaguar's cage, sometimes to the tiger's cage. But I would go to one of them, and I would just stand close to it, reaching over the, the, the bar they would put up so you couldn't go too close <laughs> to the cage. And I just watched him go back and forth, back and forth, and he'd they'd stare at me, and I'd stare at them. I I I felt more of a nonverbal communication with the big cats as a child than I did with any human being I, I knew at that time. Mm. Unfortunately, I can't say that the communication I felt was was good. I felt I empathized with this incredible frustration and anger and sadness. Maybe I was projecting, but I don't think so. And one of the, the real high points of my life was years and years later when I was going back to visit the Jaguar Preserve, which I had set up in Belize. Because when I was a child, I repeatedly talked to the animals through the cages of the great cat house, and I would okay. repeatedly say to them, I'll try to find a place for us. I didn't even know what I was saying. I didn't <laughs> right. even know why I was saying it. Yeah. I just was trying to figure out that I'd find a place for me, but this cat was a reflection of me, the, 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 the strength and power trapped in this body, trapped in this cage. And I kept on saying, I'll find a place for us. I'll find a place for us. 
And that came back to me years later, came back to me vividly when I was walking through the Coxcomb Jaguar Preserve in Belize, which I had set up as, a, as the world's first Jaguar Preserve. And I saw the tracks of a large male Jaguar. And I thought, this is great. I haven't seen this animal before when I was studying here. And, and I started following it. And several hours later, when it was getting dark and I knew I was alone and I couldn't just keep on hiking in the dark, I, I turned around and there was the jaguar in back of me. Right. The jaguar had circled around and was following me. <laughs> and this was one of those bonding moments, if you want to call it that, but it was that. It's a, the, I didn't, my first feeling, of course, this, this is a jaguar. This is the biggest cat in the Western Hemisphere. This is a uh, this is the sumo wrestler of cats. <laughs> it's a massively powerful animal. And there was nothing I could do if it wanted to kill me. So my first feelings were terror, fear. <laughs> right. Oh, my God, what am I going to do? So, so I thought, okay, d make yourself subdominant. Make yourself small. So I squatted down. Mm. And the jaguar, and I was expecting the jaguar, hoping the jaguar would just walk off. Although I loved watching it, I was also scared. And the jaguar just sat down. I squatted and he <laughs> sat. And he just sits there on the trail, the trail I have to go back on, sitting there looking at me. Uh. And I'm squatting there thinking, well, this is, I remember <laughs> thinking how great this was. Yeah. And at the same time thinking, well, what, wh what the hell am I supposed to do now? Because yeah. he's not going to sit there forever. <laughs> and I've got to walk that way. There's no other path. And I thought, I, I don't know what to do. I can try to scare him, but I'm not sure. And I stood up and stepped back and tripped and <laughs> fell down oh. on my back. And I wasn't sure. I, in the instant, I was falling, thinking, oh, the jaguar is just going to come at me now. And the, the jaguar let out kind of a guttural uh, growl and stood up and walked towards the forest. And right before it went into the forest, it turned and it looked back at me for a few seconds and our eyes met. And I remembered that look uh -huh. so clearly from, from the cages in the cat house at the Bronx oh, Zoo. Oh my gosh. And he turned and went back into the woods. He, he had his home. He had his home. Right. And this time he could walk, he could walk away. Right. He could walk away. We both could. Yeah. We both could. We both walked away completely different beings mm. than we were when I was a child. Mm. Wow. You know, something that's striking to me is when you, you talk about that early animating idea for you that you wanted to live apart from other people and animals wanted to live apart from other people. And clearly that's evolved and developed i mean even as you told the story of deciding to have a family and and then it seems to me that that even the science has kind of caught up with that 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 in your lifetime that i mean this was new information to me that that this classic con conservation strategy of preserving habitat and that separateness that apartness is not the defense against extinction that that scientists thought even just a few generations ago that so that what you're working on now is there are these genetic corridors, which is it's just more about integration, right? Is that is that correct? Absolutely, it's a, that's right. It's about 
these big cats living within the human landscape, being able at least to traverse the human landscape. I grew up professionally with the traditional paradigm for wildlife conservation that the way to save wildlife, the way to save the big things especially, was to try to make a huge protected area for them, hard boundaries, put guards on those boundaries. You keep the people, the people live outside and the animals live inside. Now, the wild, we need those wild areas, frankly. Those, those wild pockets where the wildlife have its home, and that's the animal's home first, and people's home is someplace else, that is, that's, that's needed. But what we do understand now is if that's the end point of conservation, that conservation will fail, mm. uh, especially for the big wide-ranging mammals like the big cats. These animals need to move. They need to exchange their genetic material. Locking up these animals, even in a nice big, big park, will be no more of a success for them than it would be if you put a bunch of human beings on an island where they were incapable of getting off that island and thinking, that's going to be a new a new human race. Right. Well, isn't it very much like the mongoloid pygmies who you who you met? It's exactly. That's right. <laughs> it, it is like the mongoloid pygmies. Uh-huh. Um, and believe, it seems so logical, frankly, and yet it really is a new paradigm in wildlife conservation to not to eliminate these these very good stringent protected areas we don't want to eliminate the world's last great wild places that should be protected but to make sure there are linkages make sure there are c- connections and the the amazing thing is the new the new concept the new model is that the connections don't have to be necessarily other wild area it doesn't even have to be forest area a connection could be a citrus grove, a mm. connection could mm. be a cattle ranch, a backyard garden. These are these are. One writer called them underground railways, and I thought that was <laughs> perfect, uh. perfect because that's what they are. These corridors, at their worst, can be an underground railway where where the animals slink by and the people don't even know that, that there are big cats near them. Mm. In fact, if you interview the, the people, they will say, no, we don't have jaguars around here anymore, or we haven't seen a mountain lion here for decades. And yet we know from our research, from a radio-collared animal, from, from, from a photograph, from a track, that actually that jaguar did make it through that person's area. And for you, that you, but you want that that to be more. You want the presence of the animals to be more visible. Is that what you're saying? I want them to be more acknowledged, okay. not necessarily more visible. Yeah, okay. it, it, it actually works to our benefit if people know that there are are tigers in the area or tigers moving through that area, but they're not afraid of them. Because they, they you know, it's funny. One, a, a local person in Burma told me. You, you know that tigers are in trouble when people don't fear them anymore. And, and it's very hmm. true. Hmm. Um, Interesting. When there's no fear of that animal then, and people feel safe, then they're in, a ba- then they're, they're in low densities. Hmm. They're in bad shape. Hmm. 
but that doesn't necessarily hold for these corridors, for, for these corridors, for these pathways where the animals can move between their homes, their protected areas. Those can be areas where they travel and there's no problems or very few and people are usually not even aware of their existence or they all of a sudden, all of a sudden see the animal for the first time. Hmm. And that, that's okay because th they know they're not going to hurt them. They're just moving through. Right. This is a whole new model for, and we know it's working. I've actually had this corridor officially signed into law in Colombia. It's now happening in Belize. We're on track for it to happen in Honduras and Guatemala and Panama. This is the Jaguar corridor is going to be a very real, real part of the wildlife conservation model for the jaguar throughout its range. And we're also doing this now for lions, for snow leopards, and even tigers where we can. Hmm. But the tigers are in such, such bad shape. It's hard to think of a corridor when you just have to save them in a few core areas. That's amazing. This this whole conversation is really wonderful. I, I, I want to just ask you a few more questions. Are you okay with that? I'm absolutely okay with All that. All right. I, I, I'd like to come back, um, circle back a little bit where we, near where we started with, um, with this stuttering, which kind of, which kind of uh, led you to animals, or to, initially <laughs> led you to a different kind of relationship with them. Just to say that when you talk about what helped you um, was becoming a fluent stutterer, which, is, which was working with it rather than, a, than denying it, um, and then clearly you've continued to do that, and it just it, it it reminds me of of what I what I hear about about healing and wholeness in all kinds of conversations I have um, that that in fact being a whole person is about is not just about how perfect we can be or how complete, but in taking in whatever whatever our wounds are, whatever our fears, and then integrating them into into our identity, and, and you've done that. And well, I've tried to do it. It's been a very well, long, Well, it's, it's long, the work of a lifetime, but... It is. But I guess I realized most how much I had gotten there when in 2002 I was diagnosed with cancer. Mm, I was right. diagnosed with leukemia. And unfortunately, it was... There was a doctor always said, I always recall this, he always says... I've got good news for you. It's the best kind of cancer you, you can have, which I always thought was one of the oddest statements that I could <laughs> I could be told. And then the next thing I find out is it's an it's an incurable kind of cancer. Which mm. how could that be the best kind of cancer yeah. that you could have? But it's a very slow acting cancer. So I have something called CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which has no cure at this time, but it's, they diagnosed it at an early stage in me, fortunately, and it's, it's slow. I'm progressing, but, but it's slow. And the, 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 the reason I bring that up is when I was, it, it was, of course, a shock to me. Somebody who, who I always prided myself on staying in shape, stay, being, being very, very physical, being very, very healthy. Well, you're an Indiana Jones told, figure after all. Yeah. <laughs> plus, and plus, I, I always thought I could fight everything. Yeah. I really believed I, I could kick everything in my life. Anything right. I wanted to do, I could overcome. And here I'm being told I've got something which is incurable. 
And I was told by the therapist I, w- I was advised to, to go to that I would go through these stages of, of, of cancer that I guess most people go through, stages like anger and denial and, and, and why me and all, all of that. And I said, I said to, the, to, the, to the therapist, I can tell you right now, I'm not going to go through any of those stages. I'll go through sadness, which I'm going through now because I have two young children and I'm sad yeah. thinking that I'm not sure where, where I'll be when they're older. But I will never go through why me because or the denial. I went through all that with the stuttering. For decades, I went through that with the stuttering and came to a place of comfort, of okayness, because not only can things like that really, truly make you stronger, though people say that, it really is true. Stuttering gave me my life. Mm. I so value, I am mm. so pleased to have been born a stutterer because that's, that's why I got to where I am. Now, just as I was starting to get a bit tired and thinking, actually considering slowing down, now I'm told I, that I have cancer. And what that's done is that put away all thoughts of slowing down, <laughs> okay. all thoughts of being tired and saying, this is, you know, it's, a, it's another wake-up call. You know, why me? Why not me? And wh- why isn't it a good thing? Why is it? Why can't, now I'll accomplish more. Now, I'll, now I'll, I will never, never wake up a day and sit back and thinking, this is enough. All I ever do is, is think of the things that I haven't done yet and that still need doing. So it's a good thing. And I think what, what, what you were saying about taking, taking whatever it is, taking a challenge, taking life as it comes to you and incorporating that as part of your, your psyche, as part of who you are, is really what life should be about. Right, and also as part of what you have to offer the world, right? And that's exactly yeah. what you're describing. Yeah, it is. It yeah. is. I don't think of, you know, I don't, I have a very hard time when people always call, say, you've been called the Indiana Jones and, yeah. and you're a, a hero of conservation and you're this and you're that. <laughs> I have to tell all of these years, and I still, I still truly only think of myself as that little stuttering boy who just was trying to figure out a way to live my life. Mm-hmm. And I don't see myself as anything. I don't, I don't see myself as, as being a hero. I don't see myself as, as having done great things for the world. Basically, I see myself as lucky for having lived a pretty decent life to where I could pursue the things which I really, really loved, and that made me feel whole. You know, it, it's kind of an amazing thing you're experiencing right now. I mean, mortality is not special, right? Although we don't, <laughs> but, you know, it's not at all special, but it is something that we manage to avoid an awareness of, in, especially in Western culture. And it's like you, you're being confronted with your mortality, and yet at a, at a pace. I mean, you, you get to live with that awareness for a while. And um, I, I just... I wonder if, if you've, how, and maybe this is something, this is kind of a huge question, but I wonder how you, um, how this experience you have of this living with this illness now, you know, how does that flow into how you do take stock of this life you've lived and especially this work you've done with, 
with animals, you know, the, the meaning of that, and increasingly with animals and human beings together? Well, I, I can't be any I can't say it drives me. It, I, I mean, I've always been such a driven, passionate person. So I, I just, it just doesn't let me slow down now. I don't mm. take, I don't, I don't think I ever took, I was about to say, I don't take any day for granted, but, but you know, I don't remember ever taking my life for granted. Right. Uh, but uh, it doesn't. I, 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 I actually use it in some way. It's really helped me in Myanmar. It's helped me tremendously with that? the generals. The generals the generals say to me, because they've read about it and they've heard about it, and they say, you have cancer. What are you doing here in Burma? This is a, it's not a healthy country. <laughs> it's, it's not, what, what are you doing going in the jungle with, with tigers? And, and it's enabled them to see to my core better to really have even more of a respect for me and to let me and actually I think it's truly helped me get things through through the cabinet new laws in this area protected more than I could have otherwise mm. because they really realize as as they should that there's no ulterior motive here um, this is what it's about why shouldn't I be here this is more, because I have cancer is why I'm here is why I'm pushing it mm. In terms of my own relationship with animals, I I can't say it's made me more more empathetic. I mean, I I I'm I've I've been that way for my entire life with them from the stuttering. I think it, it's the stuttering that really right. set me up for being who I am and what I do. The cancer came later in life and was another kick in the rear just to say, stop, stop thinking you're getting old and stop thinking you're going to slow up and get more done because yeah. there's still a lot to, to do. I imagine that you're also, um, is, it, is it right that your son is a stutterer, is that right? He's Yes, he is. Because there's a, that genetic component. But gosh, I imagine that... Um, this gives you all so much. You have there's very rich uh, and big, big, big um, reality that you have to navigate. I mean, in yourself and with with your children and with your son. And that's been the biggest challenge. Yeah. I can I can deal much easier with a tiger facing me, <laughs> with being told I have cancer, mm. <laughs> than I can. With my son coming home and seeming sad and wanting to walk in the fire, seeing myself mm. as a youngster reflected in in him in many ways is very painful to me, actually. As much as I can say now, I'm so glad I was a stutterer, yeah. and it, it really is a gift. It's a gift I wouldn't wish on anybody. Um, but he has, he has the benefit of what you know and what you've been through. That's right. He does, and that's been good. Actually, that's that the, that's been good. He, we, I was able, first of all, b because of my knowledge, I was able to get him treatment. Mm -hmm. We acknowledged it very soon. I got it diagnosed very early, and he's actually doing. He he's a, he can be as fluent as I. He's he's more fluent than I am, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. But of course, it's still there. It's a it's a neurological thing, and some days are. 
better yeah. than others. Some days are worse. And he will not think anything of coming to listen to me lecture or give a talk and saying, Daddy, you stuttered a bunch there. You, were, you, <laughs> really? you had, he, he calls it bumpy speech. You had really bumpy speech there. And I said, oh. I know. I know I did. Your, your speech is so much better than mine. Huh. Or, or I'll say to him, huh. Alex, your speech is bumpy today. Can you? And he'll say, oh, he, yours is much worse than, than mine. Oh, and I said, I know mine is. And that's <laughs> right. I don't want your, yours to be as bad as mine. But yeah. that's the, he's very open about it. I love that because yeah. I could never talk about it. I could never, if I actually ever tried to talk about it with my parents, they would just shut me down and they would just walk away. Did and, and it wasn't out of lack of caring. It was out of yeah. frustration of not knowing how to deal with it. Does he have a special understanding of your connection with animals? Yes, he does. And uh, I think he's developing, he says he wants to grow up and be a zoologist, and I'm telling him he should think hard about that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure I wish that on him either. But um, yes, I think, I, I think he understands me more than I, I almost realize now. Uh, it's hard because I'm a, I also travel a lot. I'm yeah. very torn. That's the other thing. When I was diagnosed at first with cancer, I was told that while it's slow, if I keep on doing what I do and I get sick, as, as I have many times in my life in the field with malaria or dengue fever or typhus or typhoid, there's a potential I could speed this leukemia up because I will be kicking my, my uh, immune system into, right. into hard drive. So they said they, they don't know if that's true, but they think that's a potential. So for a little while... I thought, okay, well, then I'm going to try to prolong my life, and I'll, I'll go in the field less, I'll, I'll stay at home more. And I was going crazy, and I wasn't, yeah. I, I wasn't the father I wanted to be to my children. Um, and my wife, of course, told me, get back in the field, because I was driving her crazy. <laughs> right. So I really realized one day I came out of one of the rooms of my house, and I watched my son uh, watching a videotape of me, a show that was done years ago called Champions of the Wild about me with, with, with Jaguars. He thought it, it was his cartoons, and, and he accidentally mm. put in this tape of me, and he mm. started watching it. And it just shows how fate in, intervenes because that was the point at which I realized that regardless of what happened because of it, I had to live the life that defined me the best, both to myself and to my family. Right. Is there, um, is there anything else you'd want to say or add to all of this? Boy, I don't know. You've, you've, you've drained me pretty well. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, it's, been, it's really, really <laughs> wonderful. It's going to be so appreciated by our listeners. Well, is there anything... Is there anything? I mean, there's, there's so much, and you, you, you clearly get it on so many levels. It's, it's very easy talking to you, and yet it's also hard to try to condense what's been a thirty-year process, yes. at least professionally, yeah. into some 
into some great stories or or, or something? Well, is, is there anything you know a lot about me? Clearly, yeah, is no, there anything and, else you the would other like thing, brought out? I I I think you know I think you've told it's right. There's so much you can't we haven't talked about, but what we have spoken about you've told so beautifully, and I can also. Um, I can introduce people to your writing, right, in my script, and, oh, and I will do that. So I will, um, I can bring some of that in uh, in another way. But I just wonder if there's anything left that I mean, we certainly have it. But if there's just anything left that you would have wanted to touch on, or you know, final thoughts. Um, otherwise, this is great. I, you know, I'm asked all the time by young people about. What should they do? Maybe, maybe it's. Yeah. A, I don't know if this is a harder world for young people than, than, than it was at any time in in the past. Every every generation has has its own challenges. But, but no matter what the world is like, people just have to figure out what some of their passions are inside of them and try to play to their passions. No matter where they think it's going to take them, I know that. That's so much easier said than done, but it wasn't easy for me when I did it either. Right. <laughs> um, You have to. You have to think about what makes you feel whole at the end of a day. What makes you wake up thinking, "God, I'm so glad because I get to to do more of what I've been doing." It, uh, you really, I, it's so. Life is short. I mean, li- life is short in many ways. But but the fact is, it doesn't matter whether li- life is short or, or or long. It matters whether there, there's any meaning to it, meaning for you personally. Somebody once asked me if I told you that all the protected areas you've set up in your life would be parking lots, would be cut down five generations after you're gone, would that make a difference to you? And I think that that, that was an interesting question hmm. be, because I had to think about it a little. If I actually knew that everything I had accomplished would be reversed or even most of it, would I, would I have done what I did? And the answer is yes, I would have, absolutely, and I would still because it's in it's it's the process it's the process of doing good things for good reasons and i truly believe that when you do when you when you attempt to do good things for good reasons that a lot more will spin off from that than just what you you do or do not accomplish a lot of good gets generated in the world a lot of positive energy goes out there in the world hmm. I really think there's a difference. When I was in Thailand and an animal that I was radio collaring that I had trapped and radio collared died. It was a leopard. And it was the first time ever that somebody had captured and radio collared a leopard in Asia, in all of mm. Asia. And the government got really angry at me. And they actually published a caricature, published a cartoon in, in the local newspaper of a hunter of, of two men standing over the dead body of a leopard. One man, the, it said hunter on him, and one man, it said researcher on him. And oh, that, was clear, that was our ca- cartoon about me, may, <laughs> equating me with the, 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 the hunter. And, mm. I, and at first I thought 
you know what? They're right. What the hell good am I doing? What good is this if the end result is animals are dying, the same thing as the hunter? Hmm. And it was a monk who lived in the forest who came to me and said, you are absolutely wrong. Sometimes bad things happen, but it's all about your intent. When you do when you try to do good things for the right reason, regardless of what the outcome is, it's a positive, positive activity for the world. And I believe that. I believe people should really try to search inside themselves. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter what they choose. But try to do things for the right reasons mm. to them. Mm. Mm. That's all. Thank you so much. Yes. Sorry, I'm listening in my headphones. Uh-huh. My, um, my senior editor, Trent, uh, wants you to know that it was through your work with the Stuttering Foundation that we found you, first of all, and that his sister uh-huh. is a speech pathologist. Right, Trent? And what were you saying? And that they... She was so moved by the speech you gave that she talked to Trent about you, and then we delved in and got very excited. So, Oh, I'm very pleased yeah. to hear that. I'm and really we'll make sure that, that we get word out about the program to them, you know, as to this, these diverse constituencies who are interested in what you do. <laughs> okay, well, and we'll, we'll let you know what's happening with this and dates, and I just can't thank you enough. It's been an incredible conversation. Well, thank you as well. It's been wonderful talking to you, and I just hope it was it was the right thing. For yeah, you. it was, it was the right absolutely. Stuff. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Krista. All right, bye bye. Bye bye.